we were in a, a taxi, so we weren't driving ourselves. And one of the kids bent down because he dropped a bit of Lego and was on the floor of the car. At which point, a camel smashed into the car, and the window that was right next to him smashed and broke and went all over us. Mm. But if he'd have been sat up, he would have got it full force in his face. Mm. As it was, the camel got up and ran away, and mm. um, we got out of the car and people appeared from nowhere and we lifted the back seat out of the car and shook off the glass and yes. got back in and carried home but my sister was later saying you know we we were remembering that you were traveling that day and we prayed and asked god's protection on you hi guys welcome back to raw mission the podcast where we bring you challenging and inspiring stories of ordinary folks sharing the good news of our extraordinary god in some of the toughest parts of the world i'm matt your host and today i've got harriet with me She's from the north of England. She raised her three kids while adopting an urban poor lifestyle in West Africa for many years and now heads the member care team in our British office. We discussed the joys and hardships of communal living, a powerful story of peacemaking and reconciliation between local enemies, a friend who was killed and much, much more. Well, today it's a great joy to have a friend uh, and a colleague with me on the podcast. Hi, Harriet. Welcome. Hello, Matt. Harriet is our head of member care at Frontiers uh, in the British office here. And we actually started at a fairly similar time. When, when did you start work here, Harriet? I came to the office in 2014. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, just a, a year or so after me. And actually our time on the field overlapped as well because you were in West Africa for quite a few years. When was that? We went in September 2000, um, just clocked up our 23rd anniversary of, of launching. Mm. And we came back in 2012. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to me, actually. Most of that decade was when I film well, Pakistan was my home as well. So, yeah, I'd love to hear about West Africa, but uh, we'll go back a little bit. Tell us how you started thinking of uh, global mission, serving the Lord overseas. Yeah. Well, I'd been a Christian for a long time following Jesus, and I knew I wanted to do something in life that was important more than maybe comfortable. Hmm. Um, but I didn't really know what that looked like. And um I left school, did a gap year, went to university, and then um, at university I took a trip to India. Um, I was traveling with a student friend and we visited friends, And uh, but in India they saw huge poverty and um, we were ripped off. I knew nothing about crossing cultures, it was, was really tricky and there were a lot of poor people. Mm. And I remember saying to the Lord, I don't want to go and see such poverty again unless I live there and I become part of the community. I learn the language and I really belong. Mm -hmm. um, he was listening. I didn't know what I was really saying at that point. But at church, I met a chap who then became my husband. But he'd spent a gap year um, in Sudan, at which point God had said to him, you will come back and to Africa and serve me amongst Muslims. So as we got to know each other, we realized that um, maybe my idea of doing something important rather than comfortable and his idea of serving overseas would be actually quite a good match. We did a, a test trip because he'd been to Africa a number of times I'd never been. Um, so we went to Uganda with a sort of, dare I say, it, paint the orphanage type short term mm -hmm. uh, event. And we were taken to visit some missionaries working there. And somebody said in the group, oh, do you know, I could be a missionary here if I lived like them because they live just like they would if they were back home. And I was just like, 
no way. I wouldn't want to live just mm. like I do back home. I would really want to be local as much as possible. We then took a trip to, to Kenya because by then we had two small boys and we wanted to see what happened if they put their feet in on African soil. And um, we had no sense that God was calling us to Kenya. But there was something about that trip where we knew we were in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. God was holding us and we had a huge sense of peace. So that was that was uh, phenomenal. And I remember saying to the Lord, I don't care where I have to go in the world, but I would want to know that peace. Wow, that's interesting. With two young kids, how old were they? They were three and one and a bit. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's a big challenge, yeah, to head off and, and travel with little, little ones uh, into an unknown situation. Just before you move on with your story, what would you say with the sharp contrasts or the similarities between your visit to India and your little exploratory trips into Kenya and so on? I mean, India, we were very much tourists and just wanted to just sightsee a bit and um, explore. Um, there was no, there wasn't a, a sort of deeper purpose to it. I was with a, a student friend. It's quite daunting to single females you mm -hmm. know, traveling around India because it's quite a sort of in-your-face type of culture, lots of attention, lots of oh, so much uh, interest from, from local yeah. men, I'm sure. And they're so used to tourists, and, yeah. and, we, and we were absolutely, um, I mean, not totally gullible, but, but um, it was hard. Mm. Eventually, I picked up a stomach bug, which grounded me for about 10 days. Mm -hmm. So yep, um, that, that, <laughs> that helped with yes, my, my regrouping mm. that was needed, and at that point, saw some nature and mountains which yeah. was lovely but very different challenges suddenly being married being married and, and traveling with children and having children so your, your yeah. focus is is quite divided in some ways well except for when you we were just we were living with a purpose we were exploring and we were listening to god what what did he actually want for us this wasn't about me and having experience of crossing cultures mm. this was about uh what's god saying what do we what do we need to be hearing from him during this time, and there were a number of things, um, but it was just really helpful to to travel, and it's very grounding traveling with kids and as a family because you take your family culture um, and your your family relationships with you. You really do. You you don't suddenly become different people um, mm -hmm. when you head out overseas. You're you're still the, the family, and you've still got the upbringing to do, and mm -hmm. a lot of the challenges that you have back in the home countries you have you know, overseas too. Mm -hmm. um, but so yes, no, we had kids to feed and one who'd only just learned to walk and uh, we were just doing life as a family but we were listening for what God wanted to show us as we traveled and that was very significant. Was there anything about Africa itself that just you felt at home there I suppose like your husband had or and I suppose the other thing is what about just being in a communal culture with kids because there are advantages too aren't there where they'll just sort of scoop up your babies and go mm -hmm. off with them and and oh okay yeah this isn't just me and my kids or my family we we are welcomed into a larger community yeah. I think that happened less certainly on the Kenya trip it, it didn't really we were tourists really yeah. even though we were visiting a friend uh, who was working there um, Uganda was, was funny because we were part of a group and we were introduced to the people in the children's home and they, they looked at us all and um, they, it took them a little while and they realised that, oh, Andrew and I were married. So suddenly this, this young girl uh, that they saw as a sort of person of little value, I sort of went up in value. Mm. And then they heard that I had a son and it's like, whoa. So now I went up another another level. And two sons and up another level. But then they discovered that the second son was only nine months old. 
And how could I, as a mother, have left him? It's like snakes and ladders. Um, how could I have left him behind with the grandparents to come on this trip? And suddenly, shoof, down, down the snake, and yeah. I was <laughs> at the bottom again. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a, a huge thing, but it was just a, a recognition of the cultures and, and the different values. How long was the trip then? Oh, it was only about 10 days. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because for some, the huge challenge would be taking young kids into an unknown situation yes. and culture. Yeah. And for others, I suppose, leaving young kids with grandparents would be a much greater challenge. So how did you know they were disapproving or you were going up and down the sort of social status ranks? I saw their faces. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, yes. It was a bizarre thing for them, but it was mm. it was interesting. And, and seeing it with hindsight and and. Uh, West African eyes. Mm. Um, I can see just how funny that was. Were you getting criticism at this end as well in in the north of England? No, people thought it was fine. It was great. Mm. There wasn't any any issue. From a Western perspective, you can leave kids with grandparents and they had a great time. And what about just thinking about moving your whole family to West Africa? Did you get any any kickback at this end from... You know, well-meaning relatives Mm. or friends? Yeah, but the the parents were... were, or grandparents were, were... Broadly supportive, somewhat questioning. Mm. Certainly when they heard where we were going to go and how we were going to live, that was a big gulp for them. But they were they, they were willing willing to release us. We had two boys initially, but then during the process of finding where we were going to go, we had um, our daughter. And so we were exploring and I was, I was pregnant. And then I gave birth and people were like, are you really going to take a small baby? I was like, well, yes. Um, this was always the intention of having children. And and people did wonder whether this was such a good idea mm. because by then, of course, we knew where we were going to go and how we were going to live. But the Lord showed me um, a verse in Jeremiah which was so, so powerful for me and helpful because God had spoken in these different pieces so clearly that we needed to be there. We knew that was our obedience. That was what he was asking us to do. And we wanted to teach our kids to obey God. And how could we possibly teach them to obey God unless we were willing to do that? And he was promising, in a sense, to be with us. And the verse is um, from Jeremiah 32, 38 and 39. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and for the good of the children after them. And to me, that was God's commissioning. It's like, yes, I am asking you to do this. This is obedience, and it'll be good for you if you fear me, obey me, um, but it will be good for your children too. Mm. So that was something that we, we hung on to and stood on. That's really good. That's a beautiful promise. And I love the fact that it talks about the fear of God. Mm-hmm. Not talked about much in the church these days, but yeah, I mean, there's, I can't remember who said it, but if you fear God, you don't have to fear everything yeah, else okay. yeah. or everyone else. And there's that one fear, you know, that's so important. And mm-hmm. then it, it helps us with all the other fears. doesn't yeah. mean we don't have other anxieties and fears, but it, it does triumph over them and, and releases us. Mm. So, yeah, that's a brilliant verse. I think uh, yeah, I need to go ponder on that one. Um, okay, so tell us how it developed then into moving out to West Africa. Did you find frontiers, join a team and so on? Right. So, yeah, shortly after the the trips we'd made, we were at a big church conference camping thing and we went to explore different um, the exhibition hall. Mm. And we were on our way to one that we'd heard of before a mission organization. 
and on the way we came across this one that we hadn't heard of at all before frontiers and it talking about working in teams and that the church does the sending and it's not that sort of the church releases somebody off and the organization takes over it was very much the church does the sending and mm. we were very um significant in the heart of our church um andrew had been an elder for a number of years mm-hmm. And they were watching us and watching to see what God was going to do with us. And they, they didn't want to hand us over and let go. Um, they really wanted to be very much part of the sending and um, ongoing care for us. And so we began a conversation with Frontiers and very quickly it was clear for us and our elders that this was the organization to go with. Mm. So the next question was then, well, where? And... I didn't really have a clue. I knew I'd married the right guy and it was going to be somewhere overseas. Andrew definitely heard Muslim. So that's why we were with Frontiers. So then somebody had the bright idea of inviting us to the big conference for 24 hours um, speed dating. And we met Mm. a number of different... Is this a Frontiers conference? Yes, it was. Mm. It was the biannual conference and just happened to be at a convenient moment for us. And we speed dated about six different teams. Mm. Our elder came with us and we uh, just listened to different people's situations and stories and discussed and asked whatever questions and then we took a quick break and turned around fetched another drink and went back and continued the next conversation with the next person but two different groups said this is what we're doing but let me tell you about this friend of ours who's working in West Africa and he really needs people coming alongside and actually the more they unpacked that and we discovered things like um, they needed a finance person and my husband was an accountant and mm. he had done accountancy because God had said that's going to be your passport uh, to overseas work. Wow. And so, but this, this, they were one of the couples worked um, in the same country, but not the same city team and lived a very simple lifestyle. Okay, so I had two small boys and I was pregnant with the third child and said, okay, so simple lifestyle, no running water, no electricity or limited electricity. How do you do that with small children? And how do you do life? And um, we sat down the next morning and just unpacked all of these things. And she gave me very straightforward, simple answers. And I thought, that works, that works, that works. And so we came back from that and feeling this was what we needed to pursue our kids when we got them back I said they were the boys were washing uh, cleaning their teeth and I said you know some people don't have running water oh what do they do I said well I think they've got a big tub of water and they dip a cup in and pour it over maybe pour it over their toothbrushes and, and they're like okay yeah that works and I thought <laughs> at, at three and four kind mm. of age they were at that point it's like it's very simple yeah. you just show them a different way of doing it and they go Okay, mm. and it was great, and that was the beginning of Probably our. Probably more adaptable than we are in some yeah, ways, aren't they? Yeah, and I think mm. a lot of it, as long as we were secure in what mm. we were doing and felt it was right and brought them along, it, yeah, it was just a good fit. Wow. Okay, so then you sort of had that journey with your church. They felt good about it. You mm-hmm. met the right team, found yeah. the right organization for you, and well, we we made a visit. That was the next thing. Okay. We took a visit to to visit this team because mm. they're the actual team leaders were not at the conference. Mm. So we needed to go and meet them and the situation. 
and we landed and we were greeted by the people we had met and because mm. they were in the city about to fly out and uh, they asked Andrew so what if if it's not this what's plan b it was like mm, uh, back to square one <laughs> yeah. um it was the only plan we had but mm. then uh, he took Andrew to go and visit the team leader and Andrew stepped into the the compound which was uh simpler than where we had just stayed the previous night and Andrew's thought was oh my word really mm. because it, it was the poor neighborhood concrete block housing uh, dust, sandy ground, no electricity, I think, at that point in that neighborhood, really. Mm. And um, no running water. Um, was there a well for water or how did that work? No, rainwater? Uh, there wasn't enough rain. There was mm. water points and donkey carts would, with barrels would bring it around the neighborhood mm. or you could take your bucket to the, the water point. And whose job was that? Um, the man, the woman? The donkey cart people were always men, um, but it was the women who largely fetched water, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so they would be the ones who carry it on their heads. Mm -hmm. But on that visit, I sat there in all of the simplicity, poverty, uh, the farmyard of there were goats and sheep and everywhere. Um, and I, I had that peace. Mm -hmm. It was awesome, really awesome, properly awesome, because... Mm -hmm knew God was asking us to make this huge step from our quite comfortable and ordinary life with real, you know, husband having a real job to stepping out with the kids on this journey. But we absolutely knew it was right. Mm. So I made my list of, OK, so what would I bring if I was coming back? And I just mm. went away with the list and we moved back about eight, nine months later. Wow. Now, were there other families on the team with kids or were you guys mm -hmm. the first ones? Uh, no, there were other there were other families, kids slightly older, slightly younger. Mm. So someone had paved the way a little bit. Yes. Which yeah. really helps, doesn't Absolutely. it? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, those kids just welcomed our kids in and mm. basically taught them how to live in that kind of neighborhood. Mm. Um, our kids then went off to the posh French school in town. Okay. Um, so they were juggling cultures, mm. um, but they had a, a Western education even living where, where we did. Um, so that, that worked well for them. Okay. What were the team there to do? They they ran an NGO and it was a feeding program. So with the drying out of the desert, um, there were a lot of people who had come into the city and the city couldn't sustain uh, that number of people. There were a lot of, there was a lot of poverty. Mm. And so there was an agreement with the US government to provide food through feeding centres, nutrition. And so our team ran different centers across the city and mm -hmm. um, that was what they were doing for many years mm. uh, when we came it, it evolved over time we tried to get more into a community de development and less of the sort of policing um big mm. food program okay and what was the the vision in terms of disciple making did you have one people group for example or was it the area of the city you were focused on or? the country was made up of two main people groups the arabic people um, and then the, the nomadic, more black African from the south. And it's a country with a, with sort of both populations going on. Mm. And the team was working with both sets of people, with some members of the team concentrating on one and some on the other. Okay. So does, how did that affect your language learning? Did you, did you get some serious months and time to get into language? Yeah, with the kids in school and a, and a lady looking after our one year, 11 months when we went, we had lots of sort of formal language lessons and things. And it wasn't until after a few months, we took a trip 
our team leader thought some language and culture trip down in the in the village would be great. He hadn't actually been to the village that he sent us to <laughs> at that point and is still somewhat apologetic for, for having done so because we turned up after about nine, ten months for a month. Well, two weeks in this village and two weeks in a slightly larger town. Mm took three days to get there because the car kept breaking down and then we couldn't find the village and we came across this sort of big barren open space with a few mud huts and suddenly it was like yes we're here I want to think yes we're here (laughs) it's great to be here but it was a tough place it was really hot Mm. these were nomadic people so a lot of them were off with their cows and mm. um, looking for grass and the sheep too. And it was their, their season where they were beginning to plant for the next season. And I looked at the horses and thought, gosh, they're pretty skinny, these two horses that are meant to do the plowing. And then mm. you looked at the people and thinking, well, why aren't they working? This is the sowing season. This is the rains are coming. And why aren't they getting on with it? And I thought, oh, no, they're as tired and exhausted as these horses are. These were all skinny people. And we had a huge privilege to come alongside and experience something of the annual cycle of plenty or moderate su- supply to, to really living at the very ends of what you had. And um, it was a huge privilege. It was really tough. We feel, I've said that we were... that village was branded on us mm. um it cost us a great deal being there but we grew to really love the people and went back a number of times over the years and saw some remarkable changes there mm. but it was it was a very tough place to be uh, for for that that first visit a bit yeah um, well it, how did it, they welcome you did they, did they know you were coming they knew we were coming and a guy from the city came with us um and he had many relatives in that village mm. and he hadn't been there for a, a long time which didn't help with finding it but mm. he was our sort of bridge um mm. and he knew french and so he was a, a sort mm. of language bridge as well when we were stumbling oh there was so much going on they 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 really didn't have much of an idea of the outside world hadn't traveled very far a lot of the women had barely gone to the next village would they come and touch your kids hair and their skin and and just the amazement of seeing very different people amidst yes and the kids would sort of sit on my kids laps and just like swash right out me personal space mm. didn't exist right. and uh, yeah. and and we didn't really understand what was going on I mean that, mm. well, that's what cultural learning is mm. about so we just kept being told come here do that and mm. it's like oh but then nothing happens <laughs> and we got fed at midnight and yes. that was quite tricky for the kids eventually mm. they they understood that didn't work but it was a a, a people that um, there'd been quite some tensions in the about the early 90s and um, between these two people groups in the country and the people that we were visiting had been pushed off their land mm-hmm. at that time, but had come back. I'm well, not going to all the politics of it, but they'd come back to try and reclaim land. And um, they'd picked this barren um, place because they couldn't get back into their village. It had been taken over and they were harboring bitterness about that. And so sure. every evening they were playing uh, taped local music, but they were chanting the names of the people who had died in this huge uh, events where where people have, had been cast out of their mm. off their land and had their animals taken and mm. lives lost. And so that was that was a huge thing that they were they were harboring. And there it was just a oh, it was unkempt the village. The men ordered the women around, the women shrieked at the kids and 
the kids took it out on the animals or, or the younger siblings. It was a harsh place. But gradually over the years, there were a number of, of really good things that, that we had the privilege, huge privilege of being part of. I mean, a major thing was when before a trip down, Andrew was going by himself. He really felt the Lord saying um, he needed to challenge them about uh, reconciliation and seeking forgiveness for harboring this bitterness. And he went down and uh, he brought this to them. He traveled with the same guy we'd traveled with initially. And he shared with him and the guy said, yes, you need to take it to the elders of the village. So Andrew did. And then they went off, which just never happens, leaving Andrew by himself thinking, oh, gosh, what mm, have I done? But I felt like mm. felt like it was what God mm. was asking of him um, to do. But eventually they came back and they said, no, you're right. We have. We've been holding bitterness against these people. You have the car. Please take us to go and visit the village. And they all sat round all the village people there, and they said, "You know, please forgive us. We've held bitterness against you for." Um, That's crazy. Hold, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but they didn't come seeking an apology for the violence. No, or the, no, no. They owned wow. their own. They they owned their bit, and the others, the other guys said, "Well, we need to ask your forgiveness for for taking." Um, taking your your village. They didn't give the village back, but they did Mm. say, what we're doing here is so important, so significant, because often people from villages go and work elsewhere, travel Mm. for work in other Mm. countries or in the city, and they said, we need to let everybody know we've done this. So these are are nomadic Muslim peoples going to talk to the Arab Muslim peoples of the same country and make reconciliation. Yes. None of these have become believers at this point. This is just kingdom transformation impacting societies. Yeah. Almost like a pre-discipleship before anyone's come to Christ. Yes. Yes. I don't think they had at that point at all. I mean, the the guy who bridged the gap, he he was a believer. Okay. But the village hadn't made any Mm. huge steps at that point. That's interesting that as a mediator... Perhaps his faith enabled him to take that courageous step mm-hmm. to bring it to the elders. Yeah. Wow. And and what was remarkable then was the, our next trip back, I just said, oh, the, the whole village has changed. Mm. They weren't playing those tapes anymore. But what was much more important was that the guys, they weren't camping on that land anymore. They were beginning to invest in it and they were taking care of it. Mm. And they were at, at a, a level of peace that they had not known before. And that was being outworked in the family relationships and in, in how they took care and were investing in their place because they were no longer thinking, oh, we ought to be somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, we can't but, settle here because we're yes. waiting to get our land back. Yeah, yeah that's so interesting. Yeah. Wow, I love that. Okay, so that was a, a, a deeply impacting sort of part of your journey. Um, yeah going out to an even tougher place to, to live for a short while. Um, give me some day-to-day anecdotes of of how you lived, um, whether it was cooking or bugs or, I don't know, just, uh, yeah, try and sort of paint a picture for us okay. so we can imagine it. Yeah, so our, our first year we spent in a tiny little compound. We had three tiny rooms and we shared with a, a family who had lots of children, um, but they were really, they were very poor, but they were very respectable and well-respected people in the Mm. community. So we came in under their covering, which was huge. Um, And we learned to live with them. There was no running water. So we shared a toilet and a a shower cubicle, which you take your bucket of water in there Mm -hmm. and pour it over yourself. And it was very basic. I cooked on on a gas bottle. Everything was at floor level living. There was no tables and chairs that mm-hmm. would have cluttered. That was just, it wouldn't mm-hmm. have worked. Um, but 
cooking with a small baby or a young yeah, toddler was was challenging. I would often cook while she had a, a nap because that was safer mm. um, or put myself between uh, her, her and the gas bottle. But yes, we learned to live there. That was great. Um, discovered after the first hot season that where we were sleeping outside that actually I shouldn't have ever been lying on my back that that was seductive and that was that was wrong I shouldn't have done that in public but you know you discover these things along the way yes I discovered just before the next hot season it's like oh my goodness they're all of last summer that's why they used to giggle at me (laughs) okay (laughs) nobody told us Uh, Um, is this in the courtyard or up yes in the courtyard okay Uh, yeah yeah, so we just had tin roofs in that Mm. in that place just sort of sleeping on mats out yes, there? Yes, just or? roll out a mat and we took our mattresses out. And, and the local just family also... They did the same, yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Nobody stayed inside oh. at, at, in the hot season. So, yeah, we lived a very public life. But I did sit on the steps um, of one of our rooms and just ponder, like, how does this work? Because we're eating really great food mm-hmm. that I've bought in the market and cooked. Um, and it's a whole scale above what our neighbors are eating. And we would always pass leftovers. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a fridge. So we passed leftovers for the kids always in the neighborhood. Um, so we take them next door. But we think, oh, okay, so so our kids are going off in the French school and they're collected in a taxi. And how do we live with integrity? But we're just so privileged compared with them, even mm-hmm. living alongside them. And, mm-hmm. and yet with it sort of... Every so often imagining some of our friends from the UK seeing us living there and thinking, oh, gosh, we've changed so much in our mm-hmm. lifestyle. But mm-hmm. but it's it, we're not really living like the local people. But anyway, the Lord just really said, look, it's much more important to them that they see you are happy mm-hmm. living amongst them. They don't expect you to live mm-hmm. exactly like them. Yeah, you can't. But if you mm-hmm. step over, I realized if I stepped over and given up, things that were really helpful to us long term in the big picture of the family, like the French school, then that would have been really hard and I might have resented being there and that would have come across. Mm-hmm. Whereas making the compromises that we did um, enabled us to live well there mm-hmm. and share life and they saw that we loved being there and that was actually mm-hmm. the crucial thing. I want to mention an event we've got coming up in the UK on Saturday the 18th of November. It's our Frontiers Neighbours and Nations Day Conference in Oxford, where we'll be gathering to worship, to pray and to connect with you, our friends and supporters. There'll be seminars to encourage and equip you, time for you to meet workers from the field and those preparing to go, a free lunch and even a live Raw Mission podcast where you can be in the audience. Reserve your place on our website or email booking at frontiers.org.uk. Hope we can see you there. I, I didn't, uh, I mean, in Pakistan, they have sort of charpai beds. And even if they're string beds, you mm-hmm. know, if you're traveling, you, you can find somewhere to sleep. They don't tend to sleep on mats on the floor much. But a couple of times I went off into the villages and the mountains and they, yeah, they just have the sort of cushions around the floor in a mm-hmm. room and every, all the men would sleep in that area. But one time I remember there were, and dried apricots in the corner and the, all sorts of critters were running yes. over us in the night. Oh, yeah. Did you yeah, yeah. have any of that going on? Um, yeah, I, th- I think because it was so dry, we didn't have a lot of really nasty things, but there were loads of cockroaches and mm. there were certainly mosquitoes. 
somewhat thankfully not malaria in the city although okay. we used to have to take yeah. precautions going down into the villages and um, but yeah often you'd have a, a mosquito net up just to keep the cockroaches out okay because uh, it's not much fun yeah. when one runs across your face yes. or whatever <laughs> and then we had a lot of visitors at different times i remember showing visitors around and um just spotted a cockroach and whipped my flip-flop off and swacked it before I even thought about what I was doing. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, there are some of them around. And then telling other Mm. visitors, oh, they they only crawl, they don't fly at you. And then they they started flying. (laughs) Oh, no. Wow. Okay. So it became normal, I suppose. Oh, it was really normal. Very quickly, a few months or a year in, certainly you've done the whole seasonal thing. And then, okay, I know what each season will look like. Yes, I think I think we used to come back to the UK every second year. Mm. And after the two years, we came back and thought, right, okay, so we, we were quite gentle on ourselves on the visit. Um, but we still felt um, quite connected with uh, the UK. When we came back at four years, we'd really done the shift. Mm. Because at four years, it was like, oh, blow. I could have done that easier in Africa. Mm. Oh, I don't feel at home here. I can't find what I need here. Mm. And suddenly we realized that somewhere between two years and four years, we had made home. Home was really mm. Africa. Interesting. And what lessons did you learn, you know, from the culture that you've carried with you now and, and you'll always carry with you probably? What would you say that you just think, ah, oh, I would never have thought like that or have learned about God even just by being in a different culture that sort of challenged you yeah we'd obviously chosen a simple lifestyle Mm. and I think the simplicity was really uh, something that's that's caught all of us living simply not extravagantly so that things were a tool so that we can do what God wants us to do rather than because they're things to collect so I think that was a huge thing but but finding God in in relationships having time to be with people and Mm. just share life with them was was just great it, it was challenging living so much in the spotlight like i said after the first year we moved to live in a different compound and we actually spent 10 and a half years living with the same couple mm. there were others that came and went but we a spent local couple. a local couple mm. and we spent 10 and a half years with them I mean, we read about living our lives in the, in the light and do non-believers see our lives and um it's like yeah, they do here. You know, before even mm. the, the first loo trip in the morning, uh, you know, you, you're bumping into people. And mm. that was yeah, a real privilege to, to live life and, and re- to go around the market and think, oh, no, I really want that and I want that. And then think, oh, but we have a tiny house mm. and I don't like clutter. Mm. So, you know, there's, living simply isn't, there's no cure for materialism. But mm. You just have to still take the same decisions not to collect stuff. Mm. Um, you, you never quite know the legacy or the the impact that you have on people. Were conversations about Jesus and prayer and God quite common for you? Yes, yes, because um, that's how we lived life. Um, Not everybody would let me pray for them um, in Jesus' name. I I had one lady, I think she was quite um, strongly into the occult. She refused. But I did pray a lot. Um, There were two particular kids who prayed for a lot, babies or young children um one had cerebral palsy and one had hydrocephalus and he lived in the neighborhood he was born just after we'd left one summer and i didn't realize until i came back and some months after that his mother always had him covered up on her lap Mm. and so we helped organize an operation for him but 
actually mm. it was it was really too late mm, his yeah. brain was very damaged mm. couldn't develop with all of the the water um in his mm. head but the neighbors you know they saw me praying and going and organized um, medication for him and you know it didn't we didn't see what we i'd hoped for mm. um miraculous healing would have mm. been wonderful but we didn't see that God's grace. I mean, when I when we left, um, I just prayed, Lord, you know, have mercy, mm. have mercy. And uh, the lad did, did actually die some while after, but he died just as Andrew was making a visit after we left, and uh, he was able to then help with the burial. Mm. And it just was a, quite a poignant. He died at that point mm. that Andrew could complete kind of the, the love and care we'd had mm. for him and for the family. Mm. Um, it's it's tough, isn't it, when you're in a country that healthcare is not great mm. and disease is often around and, and people don't know what to do or they go to the hospital, but you still have to feed yourself at the hospital or people coming and going. It's, you know, I don't know if you had a lot of that. but Oh, there's huge ignorance. So mm. the neighbor in the first compound, I found her once, she had onion in her ear or something I was like what are you doing she said oh but I've got terrible toothache and I think mm. if I if I put onion in my ear it's going to make it better I said mm, I don't think so mm. and so I was often involved in helping out I'm not medically trained mm. but you get quite good at wound care and mm. things and that can make a huge difference or mm. advice about gut so yes. re rehydration mm. getting people drinking yeah. drinking yeah. the right stuff when mm. they've got gut issues and one time, one of our kids rushed in and said, Mom, Mommy, there's a boy outside. Ugh, and he made such a face. He said, you need to look at, I don't want to, but you need to have a look at his hand. Mm. He needs you. Yeah. And I think he was actually, it was a kid I didn't know, but he'd injured. And he was just hovering around in the street outside our house. I think actually hoping to be found. Mm. And I cleaned up his nasty infected wound and bandaged it as best I could. Mm. Told him without any faith that he'd manage it. Say, try and keep it clean, keep mm. it dry. And um, and then a couple of weeks later, um, he came back and it was the bandage was off, but it was looking better. So I did the same again mm. and I never saw him again. And I, I think that that was probably one hand that was saved mm. because you often see infections uh, were just not treated well. Yeah, that was uh, something I had was the privilege of doing. Was occult a big part of? Occult was also, huge. I mean, I suppose sometimes they think, well, this problem I'm facing is... Is the occult and perhaps it was. Yes. Um, so everybody, everybody had charms on them, mm. pinned in their hair, pinned on their clothes, strong around their waists, mm. pinned on arms, um, huge rites when a child is born, mm -hmm. things would happen. I noticed one time that one of our kids was missing some hair neatly cut off where mm. you couldn't see it. It's like, how did that happen? And uh, that got me praying really praying for protection mm -hmm. um, over this child. Yes, I'd heard there was a connection between witchcraft and using people's hair to cast spells on them. Um, Did that impact you guys at all spiritually? Or Yeah, I'm not sure directly. Yes, it must have done, but I can't think of situations mm. right now. Yeah, I mean, maybe even they would be surprised that you didn't go through all the rituals and the protection oh, charms certainly. and you were still okay. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Must have yes. challenged them a bit. Yeah, and, and you know, we had a couple of major car accidents or, or less major car accidents when we travelled. And, you know, we, we we lived under God's grace. I mean, it was amazing that we didn't have more accidents or just personal accidents or the kids' health mm. issues or our own. 
But one of the car accidents, we were coming back. We'd taken a break out of country and we were coming back. And one of our kids, we were in a, a taxi, so we weren't driving ourselves. And one of the kids bent down because he dropped a bit of Lego and was on the floor of the car, at which point a camel smashed into the car and the window oh. that was right next to him smashed and broke and went all over us. Mm. But if he'd have been sat up, he would have got it full force in his face. Mm. As it was, the camel got up and ran away and mm. um, we got out of the car and people appeared from nowhere and we lifted the mm -hmm. back seat out of the car and shook off the glass yes. and got back in and carried home. Oh, wow. But my sister was later saying, you know, we... We were remembering that you were traveling that day and we prayed and asked God's protection on you. And you think, mm -hmm. yeah, just that, that timing of mm -hmm. how that happened just when, when the child was docked out of the way. Mm -hmm. It was great. Um, and another accident where, well, it was our foolishness, really. We were making one of these trips down to that village that I told you about. Mm -hmm. And um, it, we'd been, it was a slow journey. I can't remember why. And we just wanted to do the last bit but it was dark and you don't really travel that bit at night and it wasn't great but we just thought oh we'll go and we had a driver and a car full of people and our driver was on a on a track leading up to a bridge and didn't know and couldn't see that some of this road had been washed away and we basically fell into a ditch hitting the wall of concrete of the side of the bridge mm. and the windscreen was damaged the guys in the front whack their heads against it but apart from bruises and bent glasses really none of us was majorly harmed they mm. hauled the car out we just showed up in the, in the nearby village went back to slightly tail between our legs for our presumption and uh, people rolled out mats and we we slept and spent the night there mm. and the next morning they tied the car to a tree and forced back the bars from the front and enabled us we carried on going and that was that was god's grace you know we we really had just pushed on when we shouldn't have done we didn't mm. really ask him but we um came through that gosh to just give us a tiny snippet of what was the situation of the emerging church if if at all <laughs> during mm. your time there any believers around yeah there were believers so the people that we joined team leaders were already working amongst these people and the team leader was a huge evangelist andrew spent a lot of time showing the jesus film because mm. with no language you can sit in a hot room and sweat while people watch <laughs> the jesus film mm -hmm. so that was quite good for his language learning but there were initially we were working and they sort of get somebody interested and bring them into a group kind of thinking, which changed fairly soon after, in the early years of our being there. It's actually, it's much better to get people to share and work in communities that exist already mm. because there was huge mistrust between people who didn't know each other and who naturally mm. weren't part of the same communities. So that was something that we realized wasn't working. And um, But the sh there was a general shift in thinking going on at the same time. Mm. There was a, a ladies group, which again, with no language, I tended to be not very directly involved with. And they had a sort of mixed relationship with the Lord. I am not sure. I mean, I think it was quite comfortable for them to get given a good meal when they often weren't getting good meals and just have the comfort of going and sitting in a place and being welcomed. Um, I'm not quite sure fully what the Lord was doing amongst all of them. There's certainly some more than others, mm. um, some very significantly. And I personally had quite a complicated relationship with these women, which was, was difficult. Yeah, my, my more comfortable place for sharing was amongst my neighbours in the neighbourhood. But some of these guys carried on 
and grew in faith and a bit of it's very early church days. They had never been a witness up until about 30 years before we were there. So mm. if you think of a culture that's not totally not built on any kind of truth or mm. um, yeah, gospel real values. gospel yeah. values, it was a huge start, mm. very much like New Testament times. And if you mm. read the New Testament, you can pick bits out and think, oh, that's amazing. And then you go, oh, but that was messy. Mm. Oh, that didn't go well. Mm -hmm. And actually, we were living in a lot of that. Yeah. as well and then there was an occasion also where your teammates had a, um, a episode of violence is that right yeah um there was somebody in the city who he wasn't actually on the team but he was a team leader and he was shot and killed and that rocked us all mm. you can imagine it rocked us personally as a family because we knew him our kids knew their kids mm. it rocked us as a team and then in the wider community, and it was a huge loss and so shocking because normally in our country, it was quite, quite, very much a backwater city mm. in so many ways and very quiet. But this was huge. And so we had to get our heads around it in the, in, in terms of the, the family was supporting. You know, they, the other family had support and were looked after by their organization mm. but needed to leave quite quickly because we weren't sure to start with whether this was directed at this person or whether it was directed at part of a more general thing like because they're a foreigner or because they're a christian you just hard to know something yes mm. didn't know and because it was so unexpected the the family left very quickly and we as an, as a team took on a lot of their project work mm. and helped the rest of the team manage that to start with but but there was a huge fear and i remember thinking well okay so he's gone and andrew's team leader and head of NGO and mm. oh well if there's a pattern here gosh and I was like I don't believe in fear mm. but my body's telling me I'm full of fear and mm. um, because I was shaking and I put on worship music and uh, that didn't do any good um for hours and then I I just thought okay just name it and I said fear I'm talking to you I'm a child of the living God he is my protector. And I tell you, you have no place in my life because I am secure with him. Mm. And fear, go in Jesus' name. And and it did. It was just remarkable. Mm. Um, suddenly, I mean, I, I had this sort of exhaustion of my muscles because I'd been shaking for so long. But mm. fear had gone. And that was really um, amazing. In the team, we then needed to look at, do we stay? Do we go? Mm -hmm. But within Frontiers, I think a lot of people, because of where the kind of places we work, we kind of already wrestled that question out and we were all willing to stay and carry on. And in the wider community, there were a number of people who'd gone there because it was a safe and comfortable, and well yeah, moderately depends how you choose to live, but comfortable place to be. But there were um, some who were away on out on furlough and so they heard the news and didn't get the actually life's carrying on mm. picture. Mm. And a lot of people, their churches who supported them said uh, they heard the outside picture mm -hmm. and the news but didn't know the reality in, mm. in country. And so some people were pulled against their will. Some people yes. chose not to come back for a, a time. Wow. And there was a lot of investigation as to how this all mm -hmm. came about. But for, for Andrew himself, 
I wrestled with God about how did that happen. But as part of a bigger story, but the, the local people he went and talked to said, because of this situation, we need you to stay. We have opportunities to share now like we never had before because mm. this is all public. So this is local believers. Local believers. Talking to Andrew. Yes. Mm. Yep. And so we felt very much the commission to, to stay on. Mm. Something There was another incident that same summer and mm -hmm. we'd lent the kids back to the grandparents for some of the summer and we did wonder whether they were going to give them back, <laughs> but but they did. Yeah. And uh, we, we pressed on. Mm. But that was a not to minimize the story for the the family mm. who experienced that huge loss but god has taken care of them and that and that would be their their story that's that nicely in a sense leads on to um some yeah questions i have about member care generally um mm. i mean obviously you know i'm glad you just mentioned that uh, little episode about those who were pulled by their organizations because we at frontiers you know we're a team well we're a field-led organization so we don't pull people it's up to the team leaders on the field to decide whether it's a safety issue or a strategy issue and i think that's very important because yeah you know on the ground what really is changing but i don't know yeah how was your support um in terms of member care and how did you end up you know coming back to the uk and taking on this role as head of member care you know you've mm. seen how important that can be uh, personally I suppose and as a family and and how does that impact your role now and what you do yeah when we when we came back after 12 years we thought well better do some debriefing so we we said to to the office okay so we'd like to be debriefed and they said oh great idea let us know where you go it's like mm. oh okay mm. so there was no debriefing offered in the office at that time mm. So we took ourselves off, but that sowed seeds, I think, in terms of thinking it was so valuable to be heard, so valuable to have that safe place to unpack and actually talk about some of those things that Andrew and I had got to the point where we couldn't talk about them anymore because mm -hmm. we had such different perspectives. Yeah. And um, we bottled it down because we mm. couldn't discuss it ourselves. And after a couple of years back in our home city, we took up the invitation to move down to the offices. Andrew was working at the international office and I was like, well, what would I, what would I do if I came down? And the Lord spoke very clearly um, about member care. I didn't want to uproot the family unless um, it was definitely God speaking as clearly as he had uh, for us going overseas. But I, I stand on a, 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 few, a few very core things. God has created us for good works. And he's created the good works. He's prepared them for us to do. And that can evolve in different seasons. But we all have value. But we're also masterpieces that he hasn't finished with yet. Mm. And so he's at work and we're really important and significant. But there are issues in our lives mm -hmm. uh, that he hasn't got to yet. And, and God's more patient than maybe we are. Although, yeah, we wouldn't want him to radically change everything in our lives all at once but it's his steady working in our lives and mm. so member care is that that wonderful privilege of walking alongside people through thick and thin our mission statement for the member care team is that we help people to become the people god intends them to be so that they can do what he's called them to do mm. and recognizing that you know the bible's full of people that god's not finished with but he uses them and mm. so really being that safe place, that safe person to listen to, who's not the church, who has a vested interest in maybe seeing things working out well, or the team who might be part of the issue, actually, sometimes, because mm -hmm. teams yeah. are a great strength, but they are yeah. also a challenge at times, is to where 
we offer the that safe place to tell it where it where it's at and we we hope to catch the issues that are going on in people's lives while they're still small mm. um before they get bigger because the bigger the issue the bigger the mess so we work quite hard i, I head up a team it's not just me mm. um I head up a team of of great people who are really good at listening mm. and who are able to listen with understanding and team situations evolve and church situations evolve but we we aim to be those consistent people in different seasons mm-hmm. that that understand and so we spend a lot of time just tracking with people just hearing the ordinary stuff mm-hmm. because that builds relationship that builds trust that builds interest so that when people have got something they need to share they they know that they can come to us and and we're not highly trained but we and if we need specialties we can refer on Mm. but it's really helpful for somebody to have somewhere to go and so there's a number of situations that i could think of but but one is where a worker is newly on a team and there's just a complete mismatch of understanding and communication it was in a difficult season of life where uh, the team leader was understanding one thing and the team member thought they were communicating something else and it's quite hard if you're a single team member mm. to talk to a team leader couple because the the power balance is really quite something so quite often we'll we'll step in as advocates mm. for a season and to do hear what's going on and to then get the next level of help with that situation and i suppose you could also refer if you find out as the first point of contact for one individual or a couple you could then recommend well you know i think we might need to involve our Overseers, or, yes. directors of the Sunday based church leaders at some point you could bring into a situation or the peacemaking team. That's yes, what I'm thinking of. Yes, yeah. yes, certainly. And we did. And we did. And we we do. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, there's other times where you're in that privileged place of, of praying with somebody when they've experienced something truly awful. Mm. And yet they know God is good. And those two things don't match up. Mm-hmm. And you're just sitting there praying and say, Lord, if you don't show up, I I really have no answer right now. Mm. I have no answer how to bridge that gap between that truly awful thing and the knowledge that you are good. And then God just does it in an amazing way. And you're just like, oh, my goodness. Mm. Nobody, no person can explain that. But God touches somebody's heart Mm. in such a way that makes sense to them. And proves that he is good, even though that really difficult thing happened. Mm, it's powerful because you must come across a lot of, yeah, stories um, of disappointment and frustration and conflict and, yeah, just the, we're all broken, aren't we? And it's the same in church leadership. You know, pastors in churches have the same thing. Yes, yeah. but I think there's a huge value in creating that safe place mm. to um, to talk about things as they crop up and and it is a dilemma in member care because we're just hearing one side of the story mm-hmm. and in wanting to be the safe place and you want to believe them but actually it is their perspective and I'm aware of things I experienced and struggled with on the field that really were really really hard mm. um, I mean marriage stuff even where Andrew and I had different perspectives on things mm. And it was just really tough. And we just, there weren't any answers at that point. But gradually, over time, I realized that, okay, that was my perspective. And whilst we might have disagreed about it, there's a huge other side to my husband that 
I value and is huge and brilliant and I love so much. Mm. Um, and so there's a um, just recognizing that we only ever see a little bit, even of ourselves in our own story. Mm-hmm. We don't see the whole picture. Mm. And so holding on to what is it? Lord, that you want to do, what are you doing right now? Mm. You are good. How can you prove that you're good in this situation? How can we hold on to your goodness? Mm. What do you want to do when you are going to bring good out of really difficult situations for those who love you and, and walking humbly mm. with you and are willing um, willing to do that? Yeah, this is really good. And um, I mean, our sending bases all around the world have uh, member care teams and it's it's so important to us isn't it because the other thing with with folks in church leadership or or doing the kind of work that we do is that there can be a shame about expressing vulnerability and the very fact that we have member carers asking you know good questions being a safe space gives people permission to just break some of the the shame around well I'm supposed to be super spiritual out there doing amazing yeah. things for God and I can't what if I'm not feeling it or I'm struggling no and 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 again like I said before we don't suddenly become super spiritual people when we get on the plane hmm. we are very much the same people and we're hmm. struggling with the same issues of family life or singleness or hmm. marriage issues or parenting children and, and anxiety and and, and, and yeah. all of the spiritual hmm. stuff yeah and the enemy is out he is prowling around Mm. but what are we standing on and we don't suddenly become different people i think within this organization we've got quite good at training churches like this is the long haul we're long haul people Mm. so don't expect numbers and i think we've got quite good at that but it is still a question of can member care offer that safe place to just get it all out there so that you can place all the stuff on the table mm. and begin to understand it, whether you're a verbal processor or whether it's just need to get thoughts in order to then have the other conversation with that teammate or mm-hmm. somebody in the family or just deal with it with God. What is the mm. issue? Why am I feeling so mm-hmm. whatever? Um, and wrestle it out with God. But sometimes it's really helpful to identify and know ourselves better because we don't know ourselves fully. That's right. Yeah. That's why Psalm says, "Search my heart and know mm. me. Show me any unclean way." Because we don't mm. know ourselves yeah, we fully. Have our blind spots. Mm. Yes. Yeah. This is so good, Harriet. I'm aware that time is uh, running out. Could you? Do you have any final tips or thoughts you just want to? Uh, yeah, give to us at the end. Yeah, I think one thing I would like to say. I used to think that choice was was hugely powerful. That if we've chosen to do something. Um, that we'll have the strength to do it. But I think more than that, actually, sometimes that leaves God out of it. And so knowing that we're doing what he's asked us to do and we're in the right place and in the right community, then God can help us do things that we never thought we could do. Mm. Um, So I think choice isn't the end of the answer, but let's not leave God out of it. Yes, I like that because some people say, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. And there's there's a verse that touches on something around that, but he often comes through when we can't handle things. Yes, and so absolutely, yeah, it's not quite as simple as as sometimes people make out. And and for where we lived and the way we lived, never would have persuaded anybody and any of the visitors who came to check us out as a team. Mm. I wouldn't ever try and persuade anybody to come. There had to be God's calling, because it's just too messy to try and carry on carry the weight of somebody mm. else's live, learning to live somewhere mm. they have to be able to stand on their own calling yeah. Yeah, and definitely. so 
um, I guess the, the a question of what are the good works that God's prepared for you in this season? Mm. And and seasons do change, but but right now, and what what's God asking you to do? And and maybe people don't know it's not blind, not written on the wall. It's not a huge big thing. Mm. But just start with loving God and loving people, and see mm. where see where that takes you. But it is worth looking at our values. What are the the rocks on which we stand? The scriptures. Mm. I've named a number of things that are have been my rocks and continue to be as we've gone through different seasons in our own family and in the team, and then moving around and into the work I'm doing now. It's like what what are the pieces, the values I hold, the the sense of where God has shown me that he is faithful, that I'm holding on to, mm. and the truths that he tells us in his word that we can hold on to. I mm. think it's worth um, having a think about that because I've heard somebody else say who's been through a tough time, it's, it was our values that held us when everything about the situation was really, really tough. Holding mm. on to the values that we had was was crucial. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I'm sure we could talk a lot more, but... uh, Thanks for having me. All right. Great. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for being with us today, guys. As we close, I want to offer you a gift. It's a beautiful invitation to come and join in with the mission of God, the transformational, life-giving gospel work that he has set before us. The Lord asks in Isaiah, Who will go? Whom shall I send? Could it be you? Might you be willing to lay it all down, to give up everything for the one who gave up everything for you? To join one of our teams in Central Asia, the Gulf, Africa, Asia, the Balkans, or the Caucasus? Or to support some of our work through prayer and finances? If your heart is stirred to respond, do reach out to us. You can contact me on matt at frontiers.org.uk or visit our website, frontiers.org.uk or you can check out our social media platforms at Frontiers UK. God bless, guys, and do join us next time for some more inspirational and challenging stories.